This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Inflation and recession. Every so often, economists and governments use these terms when discussing the economic health of the country. But what exactly do they mean and how does it affect your finances? I'm Dashan Johan and this is Today I Learned. On the show with me today is Dr. Jeffrey Williams. He's an economist at the Malaysia University of Science and Technology. Welcome to the show, Jeffrey. In simple terms, what is inflation? So inflation is a process. It's a process uh, through which prices rise. And because prices are rising, the cost of living is rising. And what that means is that the value of your money, whether that money is in the form of a wage or, or your wealth, the savings, the value of the money is falling because you can buy less with the money that you have because the prices are rising. But I think it's important to remember that this is a process. And the, formally, economists say it's a process of generally rising prices, which results in the diminishing purchasing power of a given nominal sum of money. So it's a process. It's not a one-off thing. It's, it's something that happens over time. And the second thing is, it's not about increasing in prices of particular products. For example, recently we've seen oil prices, petrol prices rise, and food prices rise. Inflation is about prices rising generally across the board. It becomes a problem if, because it's related to your income and your spending. Inflation itself is not a problem unless it's related to your income and your spending. So for anyone whose income is rising at the same rate as prices or higher than prices, they can continue to afford things as in the way that they did before. But of course, we know for sure in the economy, there are very many people who aren't in that position because their income is fixed. They're retired, they're on a pension, or they're in low-income groups, for example, and they can't push for higher wages. And what that means is that inflation becomes a problem for them because it diminishes or reduces their purchasing power and that damages the standard of living. Jeffrey, if we look, if we zoom out and look at the prices of goods over the course of, let's say, five to six decades, we can see that it has increased tremendously, right? A movie ticket which costs, let's say, 50 cents in Malaysia during my father's time when he was a child, when he was growing up. Today, it, that same movie ticket costs about 15 ringgit. Why does the system exist this way, that prices keep increasing and increasing and increasing? Well, the answer is that not all prices are increasing all of the time. In fact, just recently, during the COVID pandemic period, uh, 2020, for example, we had exact opposite. We had prices generally falling. We had a deflation during that period. So what we tend to see is the price of um, some products rising and the prices of other products falling. And this, in a market economy, is mainly to do with questions of supply and demand. But over time, we tend to see prices are rising because the quality of the products increases, for example. Or we see that actually people's income is increasing. And because people's income is increasing, they're demanding more. When they're demanding more, um, that's a signal actually to companies that they should be supplying more people and that's the price uh, increase is often a signal to companies that this this is a product that's for which there's a good demand so we're going to supply those things generally speaking we do see prices rising 
uh, over long periods, but it's, we also see prices falling during some periods. And then we have what's related to the quality. If you think about a laptop or a handphone, actually, over very many years, the price has been, broadly speaking, about the same, but the quality has been different. The power, the, you know, the, the, the memory power, the computing power, what you can do on your phone, for example, um, it may cost about the same as it did in the past, but you can do very much more with it. So that will right. be taken into account. You touched on this a little bit um, when, when you were giving your, your opening thoughts, right? Mm. But perhaps you can dive into it a little bit. Is inflation bad? And what happens if inflation gets out of control? Um, what would that, what does that even uh, look like, inflation going completely out of control? You, you've, I think you've hit the nail on the head because inflation is bad when it's out of control. In fact, we generally speaking will have a, um, an appetite, a tolerance, both as individuals as in, our, in, in, in working and also for the government. We have a tolerance for a low level of inflation. And that is, that's why Bank Gara, for example, doesn't target to have zero inflation or the Federal Reserve doesn't target to have zero the Bank of England or the ECB. They don't target to have no inflation at all because inflation is actually part of a healthy market um, economy and it signals, as I was saying before, the fact that some prices are rising signals where the business opportunities are. So inflation becomes a problem when it's, it, it gets out of control, exactly what you said, it gets out of control because then that can lead to um, hyperinflation. And a hyperinflation is basically the situation where prices are rising so fast that you have no idea how much your chicken rice is going to cost. And when you, when you see that type of inflation, which is too high, then that leads to a breakdown in the, um, in the market. Because the price in the market is the way that you decide whether you want to buy something or not. And in some hyperinflations, you know, historically, it has been as extraordinary as that. You know, you, you can go out in the morning and the price of bread would be a dollar. And then you, by the time you want to eat your lunch, it would be $3. And then by the time you want to go home for your dinner, it would be five in places. In particular parts of the world, in particular times during the 1930s, for example, in Germany or in Zimbabwe or places like that where they have these massive high inflation. And basically what that means is you can't use the price to decide how much you can buy yourself. And then the economy then starts to collapse. But even if we don't have that massive hyperinflation, that catastrophic hyperinflation, if prices are rising too quickly and they're not keeping pace with the rise in wages, then living standards are falling, then it becomes a problem. And also, if costs are rising too quickly, because that's one of the causes of uh, increases in prices, then it's much more inefficient for companies to be able to manage their business. They don't know the costs of the things that they're buying. They don't know the salaries of the people they're going to be with. And then it's much more difficult for them to plan. Having said all of that, that it's not always a bad thing. Inflation is not always a bad thing if it's relatively low, if it's predictable. Um, it does have this signaling um, process in the market. And in fact, there's, some, there's something we call a Mundell-Tobin effect. And the Mundell-Tobin effect basically says, if prices are rising, people will want to spend their money now 
They want to spend the money straight away. They don't want to save it because if they save it and spend it at the end of the year, it's going to be worth less. So if they see that prices are rising, they spend it now. And if they spend it now, that causes economic growth. But right. it's, only, it's only really useful if it's done in a moderate way, not if it's mm -hmm. done in a, in a crazy, I have to spend my money now because it's going to be worthless by lunchtime type of way. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. You've explained what exactly inflation is. Let's talk about the why. Why exactly does inflation happen? There are multiple causes of inflation. Um, there are some economists who take the view that in inflation is caused by an increase in the money supply. In fact, they go so far as to say inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. That simply is not true. It's just not true that it is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. So this isn't to say that money, uh, the supply of money is not a cause of inflation, it is. So if you increase the supply of money, people will tend to spend that money. If right. you tend to spend that money, there's extra demand in the economy. When you get extra demand, the price of goods and services rises. Right. That's basically the theory. So it, it is true that increases in the money supply do have an effect on prices. But what we cannot say is that it's the only cause of an increase in prices. But when you mention money supply or money circulation, is this where or you hear terms like government printing money? Yes. So some people say that the cause of inflation is when the government prints the money because then we have too much money chasing too few goods. So right. there's a lot of extra money in the economy that the money, the money is then used for purchases, transactions, and... Companies can't provide the products and services quickly enough, and because you have that supply restriction, you have extra demand and uh, restricted supply, prices go up, and that's, 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 right. that's the basic idea. It can be much more sophisticated than that. So another big cause of inflation is something called cost push inflation. Right. Cost push inflation is basically when the costs of producing goods and services rise. And this is right. part, of the, part of what we've been seeing at the moment. When we see oil prices rising, the cost of oil rises. Oil is used in everything, in production and distribution and in lorries and everything. So if the price of oil rises, the costs of production rise, and then those costs are passed on to consumers in terms of higher prices. And that affects right across the board. It doesn't matter what you're spending, what you're buying, what you're spending on. It affects food. It affects hotels. It affects leisure activities. It affects anything you might buy in a department store, anything, because it, it's all affected by higher oil prices. So this is part of the cost push, which is commodity price increases. Another part of the cost push is when we have wage increases. Wages and prices are not just determined by productivity. Wages and prices are determined by the relationship between employers and employees. And so people who are in a fortunate position where they can negotiate higher pay with their employers get higher salaries, or people who can move from one employer to another because the salary is too rubbish, then they can go and find another job. If you have countries where people can push up their wage because, let's say, they have strong trade unions and they push up the wages, then the um, employers and the people producing the products have to pay more, so then they pass it on to, to everybody. So we have this cost push. 
Now, if you have that cost push, we, we sometimes get into what's called a wage price spike, which is to say that prices, uh, wages rise, causes prices to rise. Because prices are rising, I have to ask you for more wages. So my wages rise. So we have a wage price spiral. But people who don't have options to move around or who don't have power in the labor market tend to see that their salaries are being suppressed. And that's a problem because when we see inflation, even if we have moderate inflation, let's say we have inflation of below 2%, which is the sort of average in Malaysia, if you're not able to increase your salary by 2% per year, your living standards are going to fall. And we see very many people like that in the economy, in particular, for example, the Indonesian domestic needs issue recently was a consequence of the fact that the salary for these guys has not increased over a very long period of time. And we see this also with people, foreign workers in plantations, for example, their salaries do not increase um, even at that rate of 2%. And that means that their income isn't buying as much. And then when we look at pensioners, for example, who aren't working anymore, so they're on a fixed pension every month, that fixed pension doesn't increase. And of course, people who are outside the workforce um, well, however they can get money, that, that, uh, that's not increasing at the same rate as the cost of living. And that's when it becomes a problem. But that's a form of cost push. But this can also come, not just because an increase in wages, it can come, for example, due to commodity price hikes, like oil prices, for example. Or you can import it. Let's say you rely heavily on imported food, and the price of food uh, that you're importing rises, you're importing the inflation. And so these price rises and often be due to supply shortages. So, for example, recently we've seen, because of the lockdowns, a lot of companies have reduced the supply in the market because they, they, there's no point producing food if you can't distribute it. There's no point uh, running your, your haulage company if you can't move around. So this, we've had this massive supply crunch. When we see this massive supply crunch, that means that the price is rise. That's not a monetary phenomenon, that's a real phenomenon. The increase in oil prices is not about the money supply, it's about the supply and demand for oil, for example. So we see those sort of influences. Now this is really quite important because one of the biggest causes of uh, inflation is expectations. And do people expect prices to rise in the future? If they do, they're much more likely to build the price rise into their current activity. So if, you, if you're an employee, uh, you work right. for some guy and you think that prices are going to rise by the end of the year, I'm not going to wait until the end of the year. I'm going to get <laughs> the, the wage increase now. Yeah? But right. if you're an employer producing stuff that you're going to sell in the market and you think, well, I expect the wages are going to rise, <laughs> I'm going to increase the prices now. So this expectations process is also a driver of uh, the inflationary process. And that's why the central bank, when it wants to deal with inflation, has a lot of things it has to juggle because it has to deal not just with the money supply or with the level of demand or the level of costs, but it also has to deal with um, expectations. On the show with me today is Dr. Jeffrey Williams. He's an economist at the Malaysia University of Science and Technology. After break, I ask him about recession. Keep it here on Today I Learned, BFM 89.9.
Welcome back to Today I Learned. I'm Dashran Johan and on the show with me today is Dr. Jeffrey Williams. He's an economist at the Malaysia University of Science and Technology and we're discussing what on earth does inflation and recession mean? So, Jeffrey, why does inflation always, or, or for the most part at least, end up hurting workers or, or the working class but rarely ever the, the corporate elite, uh, the owners of multinational corporations and the ultra-wealthy and so on and so forth? Uh, the, the simple answer is power, right. which is that um, people who rely upon a salary, right, pay, paid by somebody else, people in the, you know, as you mentioned, in the working class, people who are employees, which is very, very broad, um, they have less power in the employment relationship than their employer. Generally, generally speaking, it's not always the case, but generally speaking. And so they can't generally push for higher wages. They have to take what they're given. This is one reason why the government introduces a minimum wage, for example, because people at that very low level of income have basically no power in, the, in, that, in that negotiation with their employer, and so they can't increase their wages. So generally speaking, they suffer more because they can't find ways of, of making sure that their income increases at the rate, at least at the rate of inflation or more. Now, in some countries, that's not true because in some countries they have strong trade unions. And so when you have strong trade unions, they can push collectively for wages to rise. Right. Okay. So then they. So countries like Denmark and, and the yeah. Scandinavian countries, for example. Yes, France, Germany, places like that. European right. countries. Right. Not, not Malaysia. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> so what happens there is that the, um, the, the workers can collectivize and then use that collectivization through trade unions to push up uh, their wages. But even then, the employers still have power. Because as the workers push up their wages, the employers have the power over the price. So they push up the price. I mean, how many times have you heard, oh, we will have to pass on the price to the customer. We will have, oh, our costs are rising. We have to pass on the costs to the customer. And that, what that means is that even if the em, em, employees can push up their wages, the employers still have power to push those wage costs onto the customers. We call it conflict. Actually, this is called conflict theory, and it's a fantastic paper written in 1977 by Professor Bob Rothorn at Cambridge University on this theory. It's called conflict, inflation, and money. And he describes exactly this process. Now, the way to regulate that is if there is more competition in the product market and the product and service market, the employers can't increase their prices because they're competing with other people. If I increase my price and somebody else doesn't increase their price, then I'm going to lose market share, I'm going to lose sales. So if you have more competition in the market, that capacity for the uh, producers, the employers, to pass on wage increases to customers is diminished. But that's a question of their power. If they have less power in the marketplace, they can't pass it on. So the whole issue is about power relations. Right. So, on that note, from my understanding, um, inflation, like you said, inflation in and of itself, if it's managed well, uh, if it's predictable, it's not a problem. In fact, it can be a good thing. Um, 
But inflation becomes a problem because price of goods and services increase at a rate that puts a strain on the general masses, um, the bottom 80 to 90% of the population, especially the bottom 40, the bottom 20% and things like that. So what if instead of raising prices, like you said, you know, putting, putting it back on the customers, um, what if businesses just decide to make do with smaller profit margins? Is that a way to, to, to get around this? Should, should there be this philosophical change? <laughs> well, I mean, good luck with that, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, I guess if you can get these guys to say, "Oh no, I, you know, I don't need another big fat German car," sure, <laughs> but they're not going to do that. The way to reduce their profit margins is to increase the competition that they face in the marketplace, because the competition in the marketplace will actually help will help to reduce their profitability, and also it will, as I mentioned a moment ago, reduce their power to increase prices into the marketplace because other producers and suppliers won't be doing that. And so it's a risk for them, yeah? It's a risk if, if they want to increase the price of their bread and the, 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 you know, the loaf of bread next to it hasn't increased in price, which am I going to buy? You know, I'm going to buy, if I provided the same, broadly speaking, the same type of bread, I'm going to go for the cheap one. So that will, it is all determined by competition. So if you can promote competition, you should be able to moderate that type of conflict. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about recession. That's another term um, we hear a lot. What exactly is a recession? Does it tie into inflation? Again, it's a process, and it's a process where the uh, economy is contracting. And um, the way we measure the economy is through gross domestic product, GDP, and uh, we would say if GDP is falling for two successive quarters, formally, that's the formal definition of, uh, of a recession. But it's basically what we mean is that the economy is getting smaller. Right. That's, that's how we mean, that's what we mean so, by recession. Uh, so is recession, the? would you say it's like the antonym or, or the polar opposite of, of inflation? Because... Um, you also used the word deflation earlier when you were talking about inflation. Um, is recession the opposite of inflation or is it something else entirely? They are both very, very closely related, of course. And they're also both very closely related with unemployment because it's a system. We're talking about an economic system. So everything is sort of related. Generally speaking, in a recession, you would expect prices uh, to fall, you would expect inflation to be lower during the recession because um, there's less demand. Okay, so if we're talking, as we were saying before, about too, too much money chasing too few goods or demand push inflation, for example, you would see less of that in a recession because the economy is contracting. If you have a situation where the economy is growing very slowly or the economy is contracting and yet you still have inflation, prices are rising, then mm -hmm. we call this stagflation. When we talked about inflation, um, you mentioned that there is that window that you know where inflation can be good as long as it's managed, like we've uh, mentioned many times throughout the show. But what about recession? Is is there like this window where recession is also can be seen as a good thing, or is recession just just bad for the country? <laughs> All right, so. <laughs> 
There, there are some economic perspectives that would say that a recession is not always bad. Right. Um, and that would be basically a view which said, you know what, there are some zombie companies that are really quite rubbish. And so when the economy is contracting, they are going to uh, close down. And so the recession then has an effect of cleaning up these inefficient um, these inefficient companies, and then you will come out of the recession more refreshed, creative destruction, for example. But this is not really, I mean, if you, if you were to say that, you might say, well, why don't we cause a recession in order to make it? Right. <laughs> and when the, answer, <laughs> the answer is no, we don't. We don't. <laughs> it's, you see, that is a consequence of the recession. It's not actually um, a reason why we should have a recession. Generally speaking, Recessions are not good because recessions are associated with higher unemployment. People lose their jobs, their incomes are constrained, uh, companies are getting less sales, lower income, and all of that means that the companies become more unstable, they're less able to pay their debts, you have a lot of um, contributory problems when, when you have a recession. So normally, we don't formally, no, more recently, recessions tend to be quite short. Because when we see the economy is contracting in this way, the government will normally intervene in order to stop it. So this is why if we say that we see the economy contracting from uh, two quarters, which is six months, mm -hmm. uh, then we've got, we have to do something. You know, we, we're basically saying there's a problem here. Right? If, this goes, right. if this goes on for too long, then you're definitely going to see more people unemployed and you're going to see debt um, problems, repayment of debt problems building up. And so generally speaking, uh, you would uh, encourage the government to do something about that. And that's why the recessions don't tend to last very long. Although right. when I was much younger, um, recessions went on for very long. That was because there was a view, it's called you know, the Reagan-Thatcher approach. Their view was the government shouldn't inter interfere. The government shouldn't interfere when we see a recession. That the, the market itself will sort out the recessionary problems because all these rubbish companies will close down and the good companies will find new market space and then the market itself will recover. How much weight does that philosophy, this idea that the government shouldn't interfere in anything market-related, um, even if it's a recession, and that market will always just sort itself out and the market should be just free in that regard? When talking about recession, you talk about um, the Reagan-Thatcher sort of perspective. Do you subscribe to that perspective? I think that uh, in, the, in the 1980s, when we had this uh, Thatcher-Reagan approach, we had actually got ourselves into a situation where the economies were really pretty rubbish, particularly in the UK. I mean, they were, <laughs> they were, very, they were very inefficient. We had a very poor manufacturing quality, very um, poor... Uh, industrial relations and, and all of that. So at that time, this was really part, uh, in my view, of a structural reform of the economy. And that's rather different to where we are um, more recently, which is when we see recessions, these are cyclical issues. So we can think about the underlying growth rate, the underlying structure, the underlying quality of the economy on the one hand, which is always better the more it is open to market mechanisms. However, what we also know is that we see 
Uh, in particular periods, the economy will rise and fall due to shocks, oil prices, commodity prices, whatever you involve it in. And then you do need to have some form of policy intervention because left right. to its own accord, you wouldn't necessarily see the economy respond positively. And part of that is because there has been too much government intervention in the economy in the past, which means that the market economy is not so agile now. So if the market economy were agile, then we would get a better response. If you look, for example, at chicken prices, which I've been talking about, <laughs> why do we have a problem with chicken prices? Because the chicken market and the food market more generally has been very heavily regulated by the government. If it hadn't been in the past, it would be in a much better shape to respond to the problems we've had now. Because we we don't have that agility in the food market and we don't have that agility particularly in the chicken market, we would see prices rising massively because the supply constraint is a very severe supply constraint. And this is not just with the chicken themselves, it's with the food for the chicken and then the distribution and logistics. And all of that is because of a lack of agility and a lack of flexibility and a lack of market mechanism there. And now what we see the government is doing is it's taking away those um, rigidities, it's taking away the approved permits, it's allowing greater imports and all of these sort of things. That will improve supply and that will help to moderate the price. It's very much associated, both the recession and inflation and unemployment, all collectively is very much associated with the level of government intervention. And the level of government intervention in Malaysia is very high. It is a very highly regulated economy with a very big role for the government, where the government issues licenses to sell just about anything, and where there is a very strong government should attitude, which is something goes wrong, government should. There is a view that the government is the solution to these problems, rather than the government is the cause of these problems. In a market economy, we'd have it a completely different way. You would say the government is the cause of these problems, Government should get out of the market. The market will then find ways of solving. What exactly causes recession? All right. Well, there isn't a single cause for a recession, but there are some things that cause recession more often. Often we will see a recession can be caused by some of the things we were talking about before in terms of inflation. For example, commodity price increase. So, for example, oil price increases. Yeah. So if we have a big oil price increase, that will cause the costs of production to rise. Companies won't be able to afford that. They will stop producing. Right? Or it will cause prices to rise. Consumers won't be able to buy products at those higher prices. Their income, uh, the spending power and their income is not keeping up with that. And so the, uh, consumer demand will fall and then companies will stop producing because they can't sell it. So it could be an external shock like that, an oil price shock. But a recession can also be caused by the government's response to um, higher inflation, for example, or the government's general policy can cause uh, can be a cause of inflation. So recently, the recessions that we've seen uh, during the COVID period are directly the consequence of the lockdown policy. There is no other cause for that. Right. And that lockdown policy is directly government policy. It's an external shock that causes a recession, and then it's a policy failure. 
So you say lockdown policy caused um, recession or, or this defla- uh, deflation, but as we saw in the US, um, where there is very little uh, government intervention when it comes to this. Um, there was very little lockdown um, when you compare to countries like in Asia or even New Zealand and things like that. But we saw the enormous death toll, the the, the strain it put on its workers, the, the mental health problems and, and all of these things, right? Which is horrible as well. So would you then say that it's about finding a balance? Yes, of course. And because all economic policy is about balance. So it's, it's very much like we were talking about inflation. Yeah, too, too much inflation is a problem, too, too little inflation or deflation is a problem. So it's a balance. So, I mean, the question of too much government or too little government is also a question of balance. You know, if you had too much market and no market control, or no, no me- mechanisms for that, to, then you, you, you see problems. Too little market, too much government, you see problems. So it really is a question of balance, and it and it's a, a question of balance in terms of the overall policy, but also policies in terms of particular sectors, particular products, particular types of activity. Sometimes you don't need any government intervention at all. Sometimes you need a lot, and this is, um, yeah, as you say, it's about choosing uh, what it is you want to achieve and how it, how to achieve that. What is the best way to achieve that? How do we prevent a recession? If the, let's say the recession is caused is caused by an external shock, an oil price shock, for example, um, in, in in some instances you'd say, well, look, I can't avoid that because I've got to, you know, I've, I've got to buy the oil. But you can avoid the worst excesses of that by having a flexible um, economy, more flexible economies. Um, are able to accommodate um, those types of shocks more quickly. But then having said that, sometimes the shock is bigger. Because of the flexibility, the shock is very big. But then they recover more quickly. And we often see these V-shaped growth paths. That is, the, the shock came, hit the economy, but we're very agile, so we recovered more quickly. <laughs> so. If you have that level of agility in your economy, you can't avoid the external shock, but sometimes you can get over it um, without, without it being too protracted. Another way, of course, is to say, well, we want to uh, minimize the impact of the shock. We can't avoid the impact of the shock. We know it's going to have effects on uh, unemployment and wages and incomes and all of this. So what we will do is we will use government policy to intervene in order to stop those bad effects. If we, if we think that the shock is going to reduce people's salaries and then the, as a consequence of their salaries falling, uh, they're not going to spend so much, then you might say, well, this shock is then going to have a long-term effect because it's going to reduce employment and reduce incomes. They're going to stop spending. And then rather than being short sharp, the shock is going to be stretched out. So you might say, well, under those circumstances, we will then use government policy to protect people's income. For example, in America and the UK, they used something called a furlough scheme during the COVID right. crisis. We said, look, guys, we know you're not going to be able to go to work. We know that your employer may not be able to pay your salaries, so we're going to pay part of that. Because if we don't, we're going to see a collapse in consumer spending. Yeah. Right. Now, part of the criticism 
is that the governments, both in the US and in, in parts of Europe, they made a miscalculation of that, which is they gave too much money to people. Right. And that's where people say, well, you know, you've pumped in all of this high, you know, all of, all of this extra money you've pumped in, and that's why we're getting the inflation, because you, you miscalculated how much people... Right. Um, well, right. I mean, what can you say? They hadn't, they hadn't seen this type of... Um, this type of incident before, and then there were other countries where people said you didn't do enough. <laughs> so it is a balance. So under the, it, God forbid it happens again, but if it does happen again, we have some lessons to be learned, and right. we will know or we will have a better idea which policies work and which policies don't. Right. Would you say, um, you know, what we are discussing? Just a final question before we wrap this up. Um, you know, we, we talk about inflation and then recession. I'm, would you say that, number one, these are all um, trials and tribulations of a market-led economy, a capitalist economy? And when we talk about unemployment, um, dropping an in income, um, how it hurts the, the masses, the working class masses um, during inflation, recession and things like that, can a more social economy or a more or a socialist economy altogether help with uh, recession and unemployment? Okay, again, it's a balance. Mm. You, you know, if you have a socialist economy where you have the state ownership of the means of production, distribution, and exchange, the government owns everything. It owns your house, it owns your job, it owns everything. It owns the factory where you work. It owns everything. These are not successful economies. So if you have that extreme of socialization, you're, you, you're certainly going to avoid recessions because there won't be any, <laughs> there won't be any, any economy. You're certainly going to avoid um, inflation because the government will fix the price. Whether, whether you know, the, the price will simply not reflect the cost or the value of the products. The government will just fix it. But that, of course, is completely artificial. It's just not correct. It, you know, it's just not reflecting the economic activity the level of demand, the um, costs of production are just are being controlled. It, it, they're not actually reflecting the value of the economic activity that's taking place. So if you have that, then the answer is no. Socialization is, is not a good thing. But if you had something which is more moderate than that, which is somewhere in the middle, which sort of says, we understand that there are groups of people in society who can't protect their income by um, pushing for higher salaries. And in fact, in some instances, you might say it would be a bad thing if they did. Yeah, let, let's say you had a lot of care assistants, okay, who spend their time looking after people who are otherwise um, unable to look after themselves. So the people that they're looking after, it doesn't, you know, doesn't matter, they could be kids, they could be elderly people, people with disabilities, whatever. They don't have the income to pay for the care assistant. So if the care assistant were pushing for a high salary, which is perfectly justifiable for what they do, they're a hugely valuable job, a hugely valuable social contribution, a hugely valuable contribution to people they're looking after. If they were to push for very high salaries, it would take their... Um, their work out of the affordability framework for the people who need it. So, mm -hmm. under such circumstances, you would um, justify there being some sort of social intervention to help them with their salary. I would say that 
there are some markets which work perfectly well and you don't need to interfere with them. Right. Uh, and uh, these are most markets. Most markets work perfectly well and you, know, you don't need to interfere with them. But there are some markets which don't work well for reasons that we know. Yeah, I just mentioned the one for yes. air resistance, for example. But there are very, very many markets where um, we don't, for example, we don't have complete information about how the market should work. We don't know the quality of the product we're buying. We don't know if there are alternative products to what we're We're just badly informed. If I went, right. to, if I went and bought a new phone, I would, <laughs> I, I mean, I would just be a sucker because I have no idea how they work. Right. So, right. But then somebody else would be completely able to do that. So there are some markets where it's the responsibility of the market participants, the consumers, the employers, the employees, to, to deal with that. You don't need to have anybody else interfering with it. But then there are other markets which, for reasons that we know, very clearly they don't work in the way that we would hope or expect, and we need to involve ourselves there. The challenge then of economic policy is to find the markets where we definitely need help, find the markets where they don't need help, leave the ones with where they don't need help alone, let them get on with it, and focus on the areas where we need to focus. That's the real challenge. On that note, thank you so much for joining me today, Jeffrey. That was Dr. Jeffrey Williams, an economist at the Malaysia University of Science and Technology. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can check out the podcast on the BFM app, BFM.my or pretty much wherever you get your podcast from. I'm Dashan Johan, and this has been Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.